Welcome to the Pint-Sized Science Podcast, a new podcast started in collaboration with Science in the News, where a group of graduate students striving to open the lines of communication between scientists and the wider community. My name is Melissa Kant, and I'm a graduate student in the physics department at MIT. Today, I'm talking with Professor Ian Cheeseman. He's a professor of biology at the Whitehead Institute and the Department of Biology at MIT, and his research aims to understand how cells divide by uncovering the molecular basis of the kinetochore, a complex that helps segregate chromosomes during cell division. Hi, Ian. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So can we get started with your research? What do you work on? Yeah, so as, as you mentioned, we care about how cells divide. Um, and this is something I've been interested in for a long time. I find it really fascinating how you can take a single cell and, and turn it into two usually identical cells, at, at least in, um, in terms of their genetic material. Um, and just all of the things that you need to do to um, duplicate the, the cell, the, you know, make new chromosomes and, and evenly distribute them between the two new daughter cells. And so this is actually something I became fascinated by um, even as a, a grad student. So I, I have been working on this for a long time, basically how you, you achieve that. What I really love is the molecular machinery that does that. You know, how do you build the machines inside of a cell that are required to um, distribute the genetic material, for example? And so our, our lab is interested in um, defining the molecular components that are, are required to, to do that, and then how they, how they do that. Like, how do they work individually? How do they build up these larger um, machines that um, uh, direct cell division and chromosome segregation? So we've been working on this for a while, and, and um, I think the, the thing that basically connects a lot of our work these days is that um, these processes that people have been looking at for more than 130 years and, and that I've been working on since uh, 1997 as, as a grad student, um, you think about them in very stereotyped ways. I think you know, we draw models in textbooks and we have this sense that basically all eukaryotic cells um, divide and distribute the chromosomes similarly. And what really connects a lot of our work these days is actually the diversity of that. And so I find it super cool that you have this essential core fundamental process that is critical for every aspect of life. It's critical for making our bodies. It's, it's critical for um, you know, sexual reproduction. It's, it's critical for every single um, aspect of life that we see out, outside um, um, plants or animals or anything else. You, you need cells to be able to divide. And so you have this core process that you always have to get right. You can never screw it up. And yet the way that you can alter this process to achieve different things or um, you know, deal with different circumstances is pretty dramatic. And so we're, we're really focused on the function of the core process, but also its variation and modulation. And so that can be across development or across tissue type or across different uh, stages or ages in an organism. Um, and also across um, uh, meiosis versus mitosis and even across evolution. And so we're interested in, in basically core principles, but, but also um, the diversity of this fundamental feature of, of life. Um, so we 
we study this in a lot of different ways. Um, we study this a lot by looking, you know, I think watching a cell divide is perhaps one of the most beautiful things that you can, can see. It's really um, synchronous and elegant and, and physical and um, dynamic. Um, there's a lot of things that have to go into um, making two new cells. And so we, we do a lot of microscopy and cell biology. Um, and then we do also a, a lot of um, molecular approaches. We um, identify the proteins using mass spectrometry. We try to build them back up using biochemistry. We mess with them um, taking functional approaches in, in human cells, for example, to mutate and change things. And we have ways of, of screening for new factors to try to identify the, the players that exist. And so we really want to define the molecular underpinnings of each of these things and, and also how those components are being rewired um, as uh, circumstances and requirements change. That's very interesting. So what kind of organisms do you use in your lab to study this? Yeah, okay, so what I, I mentioned I started studying this as a grad student um, when I was a, a student at UC Berkeley in the um, Barden Strubin lab. And there actually, like I um, started using uh, budding yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, you know, small single cell eukaryote, um, a lot like our cells and a lot different in other ways. And, and so uh, I got into this by studying what is a really nice genetic organism, uh, a budding yeast. Um, when I transitioned to do a postdoc, I continued to work on cell division and I worked with uh, Arshad Desai at, at UCSD. Um, and there I used um, C. elegans, uh, sort of a very small soil living worm, a nematode. Um, and we were studying cell division in, in C. elegans, which is also fascinating. These, you know, this first egg, um, first embryo, um, the cell is huge. And so you can really beautifully see these, these things divide. Mostly these days, our lab uses human cells and human cell culture. Um, and so I, I started doing that. Um, when I was postdoc with Arshad and uh, has been continued to be the focus of our lab. And in some ways, actually, I think we sort of work with the human cells the way that I used to with um, budding yeast. It's a sort of like a single cell organism living in culture. It just happens to be derived from a person. Um, but we've also started to explore with, with diverse other organisms. So as you know, we have um, starfish in our lab. I think starfish are amazing. They're beautiful. And uh, starfish are, are a place where you can get... Um, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of oocytes that are all sequentially arrested. And so we have a great way that we can uh, study meiosis and early embryonic development. And it's been a, a super fun system to explore. Um, but we're also starting to explore other systems as well. We're starting to work more in, in vertebrate models as, as well. Um, and I think basically open to any case in which we could um, have a, a advantage to be able to ask a, a question or, or see how things are changing. Could you, for our listeners, could you explain very uh, briefly the difference between meiosis and mitosis? And could you tell us for the same organism, what kind of things have you found to be similar or are there very large differences in the same cell system uh, between the proteins associated with cell division between meiosis and mitosis? Mitosis is, is um, what most of our cells in our body are doing. And, and you, know, you have one cell and whether that be a, a liver cell or a brain cell or skin cell or something like that, if you want to make two of those cells, um, you need to undergo mitosis. And so in our, in our bodies, for example, each cell has 46 chromosomes. And if you want to make a, a genetically identical cell, you have to take all 46 of those chromosomes 
copy them and then divide them between those, those two cells. And that process happens a lot. I mean, so our, our bodies have 30 trillion cells in them. And each day there's probably about 50 billion divisions, 50 billion um, mitosis events uh, just to make the new cells that we need um, to exist and function. Um, and so it, um, it's a reproducible, but can, like I said at the, at the beginning, can, can vary a, a little bit in terms of um, uh, the way that the process is working. But the goal is to basically copy yourself, to, to make a new copy of yourself. Meiosis is um, what you need for sexual reproduction. And so if you think about um, the, um, where we all came from, um, we have 30 trillion cells-ish now. We all started as a single cell. And that cell um, be, um, came about by a fusion of um, egg from your mom and sperm from your dad. And so there's two individual cells that had to merge to, to make that. So we have 46 chromosomes. And, and so therefore we had to get half of those from one of our parents and half of those from, other, from the other. And so those individual cells, the egg and the sperm that began had to have half of the number of chromosomes that we normally had. And they arose through meiosis. And, and so that's the um, altered division strategy where instead of exactly copying things and you know, 46 chromosomes in one, 46 chromosomes in the daughters, now what you do is um, a combination of divisions, two subsequent consecutive um, meiotic divisions, meiosis one and meiosis two, um, and the, the net result of that is that not only do you distribute the genetic material, but you end up with half of that amount. So there's a lot of things that go into meiosis. And yet at the same time, actually a lot of the requirements are the same. You need to be able to um, physically grab those chromosomes and distribute them. And actually a lot of the um, players that our lab and others have identified that would be required for mitosis are also required for meiosis. And yet you have to achieve something very, very different, which is to distribute the DNA, but um, you know, to distribute um, replicated homologs in, in the first division and then sister chromatids in the second. And that's mostly a way of saying um, that you're going to use those divisions. The first one is, is going to basically divide the DNA in half. And to do that, that's a lot of changes that need to occur. And so um, there are proteins that are present in meiosis that are not present in, in mitosis. And there's actually also control, regulatory paradigms that um, exist in meiosis that are, are different from um, mitosis. And so there's certainly, I think, a lot of really cool things still to discover. Um, there's really fun work um, that our lab has done recently, um, including uh, great work from a grad student in our lab, Nolan Meyer, who has um, explored a meiosis-specific kinetochore component. This is the, the structure that you mentioned that is um, required to grab on, hold, and, and move the chromosomes. And so there's a protein that exists that at this structure that's only present in myotically dividing cells. And so Nolan's work has uh, investigated how this is precisely controlled um, to be able to um, direct and drive these, these differences during meiosis. Um, and then also re recent work from Zach Schwartz, who's a, a postdoc in the lab uh, in collaboration with the Kettenbach lab at, at Dartmouth has explored how phosphorylations change. So regulation of proteins, control of proteins is really important. And again, very, very similar things happening in mitosis and meiosis and yet differences too. And so Zach's work has explored how um, the patterns of control for individual proteins is, is being changed during meiosis. Um, so this sexual reproduction and this you know, division to make the gametes, to make the sperm and the egg is, is really central. And 
physically similar and yet in other ways very very different and i think we're actually probably still just um scratching the surface of of how you achieve that that's fascinating so uh what would you say are the biggest unanswered questions at the moment um i don't i think it's hard to choose just one and and i think that's the the fun thing of, um about being able to um work on this um, and having a lab and, and having a wonderful um, group of, of people um, within our lab. Um, everybody in the lab has um, interrelated projects and yet each very different. And, and I think each one of those represents the question that I think is the most important. Um, and so it's really fun to think about um, discovering the new biology that's there and, and you know defining the way that the things work that we do know about. And so I, I think a lot of our projects in our lab are um, you know, like some of them that I just mentioned that, um, hey, we, we know that this protein exists. How does it actually function in that way? Or how is it being controlled under these new circumstances? But there's often a lot of times too, where, you know, we, we don't know that um, what the answer is going to be or, or not even aware that um, this paradigm matters. And so actually both of those that I mentioned, um, the work that Nolan did to um, understand this, this rewiring of the control of this mouse specific protein and the work that Zach did, um, to understand these um, altered patterns of, of phosphorylation and regulatory control. I, I don't know that we expected that that was going to be a critical thing when we, when we set out to look at them the way that we did. I guess, you know, I don't know, themes for our lab. Yeah, the rewiring under physiological circumstances, how myotic cells rewire, how different cell types rewire, how cells achieve different requirements under different circumstances, I, th I think is central to what we care about. Um, I also, I, I think for us, it's really fascinating how cells achieve the absence of division and yet um, need to divide again. And so a, a lot of the things that we really care about these days are how do you have a cell hibernate for days, weeks, months, years, decades in the case of an oocyte. So an oocyte is, is made in a, in a human before they're born um, and has to, to sit in this hibernation state for really decades before it can divide again. And so how do you maintain that division process, I think is high on our list of questions. Um, and then also just those requirements, what do you need to achieve this? And, and actually um, not, a, not every cell requires the same factors and components, even though these are all conserved largely across eukaryotes, I think probably would be central for me. Um, but yeah, I, th I think it's, it's the beautiful thing about the biology is there's not just one question. I, I think that there's hundreds of questions that um, are really critical to understand. And, and every time we do it, it ultimately can not only inform us on these fundamental, fundamental mechanisms of how life works, um, but ideally also contribute to how we think about the understanding and treatment of disease. Well, you mentioned with um, oocytes and um, human oocytes and how they hibernate and divide and how different cells use different mechanisms to divide sounds a lot like your research might be intricately linked to potentially diseases, human diseases. Uh, is that true? And what kind of issues with the division machinery uh, would lead to what kind of diseases and how would your research uh, shed light on this? Yeah. First and foremost, we want to understand how things work. And, and I think that, you know, sort of the idea that frames a lot of that is if we truly understand um, these fundamental mechanisms, um, it should tell us a, a lot more about our, ourselves and our bodies and, and how things can go wrong. 
Um, and unfortunately, there's a lot of ways for things to go wrong. There are a range of different ways that I think it's important to think about that. And, and so um, I'm going to mention multiple of those. Um, and first, I think starting with and, um, cancer is, is an important thing to, to mention. And cancer in, is a genetic disease in many ways. It's a change of our, our genomes um, that causes cells to um, function ab abnormally. And a central part of that is that about 90% of solid tumors have um, the wrong number of chromosomes. And so I, I mentioned that most of our cells have 46 chromosomes. And um, one of the exceptions to that is, is cancer where that can, um, you can start to get abnormal chromosome numbers um, that can be really consequential for the behavior of those, those cancers and tumors. And so uh, there's actually a variety of changes to the core molecular machinery that we care about in cancers that can destabilize the fidelity of cell division resulting in some of these. One of the big problems with cancer cells is that they just keep dividing. You, you, know, they, you want them to stop, but they just keep going. And, and so actually targeting the process of cell division does hold uh, a lot of promise for thinking about how you would um, combat this really devastating disease. And so right. cancer is definitely something that we um, think about uh, for the um, consequences of our work. The second, and it's actually kind of surprising if, if you, you know, so many of the factors in the molecular players we work on are mutated in, in people. And, and some of those can definitely lead to an increase in the prevalence of cancer. But actually, you would imagine that if you strongly disrupted cell division, you just wouldn't be able to make a person, which is certainly true. Like a, a, a strong um, mutation would be a, a, a lethal event for um, uh, making a, a person or any animal. But there's actually a, a variety of mutations that exist in these molecular players that can result in brain development defects. And that actually still really surprises us a, a, a lot because it's not really qu clear why neuronal cells and, and brain development is exquisitely uh, sensitized to changes in cell division. And, and so that's certainly very interested, interesting to us. Recently, and particularly this work that um, on, on hibernation, how oocytes hibernate and how other cells in our body hibernate um, has made us think a lot more about aging. You know, for our bodies, as, as I mentioned, there's about 50 billion cell divisions a day. That works really well. We're always constantly replenishing our, our cells and uh, organs and, and tissues. And that ability to, to have things turn over and make new parts to repair, you know, damaged cells, damaged tissues is, is pretty important. And, but that stops working quite as well as, as we age. And so whether that be sort of increased incidence of miscarriages and birth defects, but a, a lot of other things, you know, that are, um, you know, brain function changing or other things changing. If we had that ability to make sure that we could safeguard those hibernating cells uh, to ensure that they could uh, return to division smoothly, um, that would be a powerful way to combat a lot of these uh, issues surrounding um, the changes that occur in our, our bodies as they age. So yeah, I think there, that because this core process of division is so central to multiple aspects of life, it touches on a lot of features of, of different aspects of disease. And, and you know, hopefully our work will contribute to it, either that understanding of disease and ultimately maybe also uh, treatments in, in specific ways. And that sounds like you would have a lot of overlap with different researchers who are doing work on different parts of uh, the cell. So do you talk to others who are interested in aging but are looking at different components of the cell related to that? Uh, or 
similarly with cancer or other diseases. Yeah, I, I think science is always fun and, and that how interactive and collaborative it is. Um, and so, you know, within our lab, certainly I love the fact that people can work together in different ways. Um, it's uh, the building that I exist in, the Whitehead Institute and the department I exist in, in my team, Department of Biology are both really engaging and interactive places um, uh, to be part of with um, lots of people with very different expertise and, and approaches and ideas and uh, the larger Boston uh, community and then the entire world. And so I, I think that on you know, a daily or weekly basis, the number of different labs that we're speaking with um, you know, can be dozens in, in terms of uh, working with people in, in different ways. Um, and I, I think, so we, we have a lot of longstanding collaborations, people we've been working with for, for a while um, who have maybe like-minded interests for us or, you know, but complementary expertise and capabilities. Um, but so some, some of this has been very new directions for us too, the, you know, the ability of cells to hibernate and this ideas of aging or um, some of these other things. And so it's, it's been great to be able to find those communities. So recently we received a pilot award, for example, from a new consortium, the Global Consortium on Reproductive Longevity and Equity. Um, and this consortium was created partly to seed work on reproductive aging and, you know, for example, the, the oocyte work that I mentioned. And so being able to receive some funding for them has been phenomenal, but particularly also being able to be part of that community and create new connections with people is, is particularly helpful too. Um, yeah, I, th I think you always need to be able to uh, find and, and make connections that will be able to drive forward that science. and it's been a satisfying thing uh, to be able to get to know a range of people who have different ways of thinking about a problem or you know, may allow us to um, go after one of these problems in, in a way that just simply wouldn't have been feasible otherwise. Yeah, I think the most powerful tool we have in science is collaboration and bringing people with different expertise together to solve a problem, common problem. Absolutely. So you mentioned at the beginning of uh, this interview that you have been working on this topic since 1997, I believe. Mm -hmm. So how has the field changed during that time? And how do you see uh, going forward from here? And do you have any advice to young researchers going into this field? Maybe that's several different things. Maybe I'll, I'll, uh, I'll start with the first parts. I think the field has changed quite dramatically. Um, and I think there's been sort of maybe three major eras uh, for cell division. And, and I think probably the same is true for a lot of core processes. So I spent one summer actually a few years ago looking through the MIT archives. They have a lot of like old books and things like that. Um, there's these um, books with hand drawings of um, mitosis. You know, people in 1880 looking at um, you know, cells dividing and looking down a microscope and sort of watching that behave. And they didn't have cameras or anything like that, but just were drawing by hand what they saw. And so I, I think, you know, starting 140 years ago, um, people had been watching cells divide. And I think that largely that's sort of where the field was until maybe the 1980s is that we could visually watch this process and you could learn a huge amount by watching just being able to, to see chromosomes move and behave. And, you know, there's a lot of basic principles that, um, you know, wonderful researchers, um, Ted Salmon, um, Bruce Nicholas, and, and many, many others um, uh, got from just watching cells move and, and sort of poking on them and touching them and, and um, in different ways. 
the first um, molecular component of this kinetochore structure, the, the sort of massive molecular assembly that helps actually move and distribute the chromosomes um, in human cells was found in um, the mid 80s. So 1987, I think is, is when it was technically cloned. Um, and I think that that was a point where there really was this transition where instead of just looking at it, we could start to understand the molecular players and you know how they're changing and, and to be able to um, mess with them and, and perturb them. But so there at that point, you know, we knew one protein and then next year there was another one found. And, you know, so I think that there was an era um, that certainly, you know, I participated a lot in as, as a grad student and as a postdoc and actually even in our new and my own lab when I started at, at Whitehead and MIT of just trying to figure out who the molecular components were. So if you imagine, you know, a car, for example, you can watch it drive around the first thing you really want to know is what the parts are. Okay, okay, we need this wheel, we need this you know, steering wheel, we need the brakes, so we need, you know, we, you've got to actually find those and sort of catalog them. And that's actually a much harder thing to do than you may anticipate. And at least for, you know, this Kineticore machine, uh, for example, it took a while to do that. And so it, I, I think, you know, from about 1987 to 2010, uh, a lot of the, the focus was trying to um, figure out who those factors were. I think um, starting about 200, 2010, there's been like a big shift, which is actually, we probably have the parts. Maybe we're missing one or two, but we basically know who the players are that function in this process. And so we can do the really fun stuff now, which is actually try to put them together, you know, build them back up or think about, you know, okay, we want to understand this new process. What, how do we think about the way that these things work? And so I think that there's been a big shift just in terms of that nature and uh, of the research focus and also the capabilities, what's feasible to do things. Um, I think that on the side beyond our field, there's been a lot of changes too. And, and you know, sequencing technologies and just that ability to, um, you know, have information from many different organisms, many different cells, many different cancers, and, and to use that in the way that we do our work has, has been amazing. And then for us too, the, and as, you know, most labs in the world, um, the ability to use um, CRISPR Cas9 type technologies um, to be able to actually make functional perturbations and changes in a human cell, for example, have, have been really powerful. And, and so there have been enabling things that have allowed us to really think about a problem differently and approach it differently um, than was out there. I think that um, in terms of me navigating that and, you know, what is my ad advice for young people starting out or, or whatever. I think that it's a very hard thing to give advice um, because every person is different. Every person's uh, situation and experience is, is different. In my own case, um, when I have tried to be super savvy and strategic, it has never worked. Um, but when I have found something that made me happy and you know I, I loved and, and I wanted to keep exploring and understanding, um, that has at least allowed me to to find those um, places of of you know what I consider as a success, which is um, in part finding cool science and being able to continue to um, push things forward. Um, I think that yeah, finding that thing that you love and makes you happy. Um, so in you know in my case, for example, I started working on cell division um, as a grad student, and I really loved it. I wanted to keep doing it, and I think that a lot of advice you get is okay, you should change fields or you should try something new. And there was a lot of things that changed along the way. Um, but the fact that I just thought it was a super cool thing to be able to study, um, I think was a, a fun thing to be able to um, 
enable me to do the, the things that I wanted in the way that I wanted. Um, and so, yeah, finding, finding that passion is, I think, helpful and important, but you shouldn't necessarily expect that you're going to find it on, on day one. And, um, you know, so letting that um, come to you and when you see that thing, um, grabbing hold on it and going after it. That sounds like some wonderful universal advice for anyone hoping to pursue a career in the sciences or research in general. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.